You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. In today's episode of CEP's series, Eye on Antisemitism, we'll explore antisemitism among native-born immigrant communities, and we will particularly focus on the United Kingdom today. We're going to look at attempting to understand how antisemitism manifests in Muslim communities, what causes antisemitism has in those communities, and you know if there are any counter strategies that work effectively uh, in practice to tried to combat anti-Semitism. I'm delighted to say that with us today is Fayez Mughal, founder of Faith Matters and Tell Mama, which stands for Measuring Anti-Muslim Attacks. Fayez will be able to share his many expert insights into how we can create meaningful connections between Muslim and Jewish communities. So I'm really looking forward to hearing his perspectives today. Fayez, you're very, very welcome. And thank you for joining the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe to kick off, it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about your work and your experience in addressing anti-Semitism amongst um, Muslim communities in the UK, and a little bit maybe about how prevalent anti-Semitism is within those communities specifically. Yes. So I initially came to this work around challenging anti-Semitism, I reckon around 2001, 2002. Part of that was because of some of the narratives around 9-11 and some of the stuff that I'd seen around propaganda material, I would say, that was circulating in parts of Muslim circles. Um, so leaflets given out, etc., etc., lectures undertaken. And it was a small group of individuals within the Muslim community. I just need to be clear about that. But I was it was pretty daunting for me what I was hearing. I've never been brought up with anti-Semitism in my household. It's not to say I haven't heard it since then. But uh, And so when I came across some of the comments in 9-11, it was extremely disturbing, particularly because there was been, there'd been an attack against another country and the anti-Semitism was justifying that attack. Now, part of my journey to try to counter that, I came to the realisation early on that actually looking at, and this was now later, 2002, 3, 4, went by 5, and then I realised in those 3, 4 years that the, what happened in Bosnia and the, the killing and the genocide of Bosnia and looking at perspectives of the Holocaust, not comparing them, just to be clear, but relating how genocide has affected clearly and impactfully Jewish communities in Europe. And also now with an example of a smaller genocide, but a genocide, no, no doubt, of Srebrenica and the killings there was a way of trying to bring Muslim and Jewish communities to understand one another, was also getting Muslims to understand the perspective of the Holocaust, was also trying to build alliances between both communities. So there's three elements of that kind of objectives within this work. And so I spent a lot of time trying to get a project together to get this understanding between Muslims and Jews to look at Srebrenica and the Holocaust. That was 2004. I didn't. I spent two years of my life, my own money, trying to make this project happen. Eventually it didn't happen. We didn't raise enough money. But that was the start of my educational and self-reflective journey into challenging anti-Semitism 
connecting with what happened of the history of the Holocaust, but also connecting empathically with Jewish communities. So that was the start of my journey. Ever since then, what have I done in Muslim communities? Well, you know, not only set up a project to nationally monitor anti-Muslim hate through Talmama, worked on bringing Muslim and Jewish communities together through interfaith activities in faith matters. But partly, sadly, I've had to challenge in parts of my own faith community, as I said, the anti-Semitism. And when I say challenge, I mean openly challenge. I mean counter online, counter through speaking engagements, provide education, i.e. through social projects like finding connecting points of our histories as Muslims and Jews, not glossing over the difficult history, but acknowledging it but also finding points of relevance, looking at religious similarities, looking at geographical similarities, looking at cultural similarities, looking at the language similarities. I've used a variety of mechanisms to try to bring Muslims and Jews together through formats, through educational material, school learning materials. And then there's the challenge function, which has been more open. And it's not been an easy journey, as you can imagine. There are sadly some people who are just anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. I'm linking the two together because there are those sections in communities and also a small section within Muslim communities who are anti-Semitic and anti-Israel and who are also vocal, who are also challenging and sometimes, sometimes occasionally dangerous. And so it is a difficult area of work. Really interesting in terms of how it came onto your radar post 9-11 and that initiative in sort of linking the genocidal experience of Jews and Muslims together through Srebrenica and the Holocaust is, is really interesting. It's it's a shame that that funding didn't materialise, but sounds like a, a, an excellent and relevant initiative. So maybe tell me a little bit about founding the organisations that you're involved in, Faith Matters and Tell Mama. You know, what are they? what do they do? What's the difference? And how do they link to this general work on anti-Semitism? Yeah, so that's, uh, thank you for that. So Faith Matters was uh, primarily its work was around social cohesion and interfaith work. And the primary basis was interfaith work between Muslim and Jewish communities. And it expanded over time, but it was primarily to bring Muslims and Jews together. And so Faith Matters was founded in 2005. I could feel from 1999 onwards, and then I'm I was in another part of the UK and I moved there and I could feel even in rural parts of the UK that there were there were those who were trying to create divides between Muslims and Jewish communities by using the politics of the Middle East. And it, and it affected me deeply that two communities that were quite close were, in, a, in effect, not only by people manipulating both or trying to manipulate both to divide, but people actually trying to suggest that one community or the other was the problem. And for me, that was very, very troublesome. And so the basis of Faith Matters was to try to bring both communities together and to provide alternative ways of stickiness, of gluing, of connecting, of bonding for, for communities beyond just what by 99 had become the Israel-Palestine issue. In fact, we know it's not just in the 90s, the Israel-Palestine issue. I want to add something else that how do how did I come to this work? Well, also one other element of stuff that I'd seen in the early 80s, which was really circulated quite significantly in the early 80s, were these kind of home printed small leaflets that were circulated, again, in small parts of Muslim communities, sometimes given out outside very specific mosques in urban areas in, in the UK, which was anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Loads and loads of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories attached to the Intifada. That period of the Intifada 
So things like killing children, selling organs, was circulating, was being giving out. You know, that this is a global world order. This stuff is not new. I saw this stuff in the 80s and it's been going on for millennia. We know this has been, but it's the same rehashing of materials. So the first circulation I came across, these kind of materials were in the mid-80s. And with the mid-80s, effectively, that was an indicator that Islamist, cir- Islamist circles were very active in the mid-80s. And it correlates to when a lot of these individuals, Islamist organizers in the Middle East were being booted out of the Middle East or fleeing the Middle East because they were coming under persecution. So where were some of them ending up? In London. They were making London the hub of their Islamist activities. With that came Islamist propaganda. With that came the circulation of that propaganda within the UK. So actually, its root goes right back down to that time. But so what did Faith Matters try to do? We tried to basically bring Muslim Jewish communities come together, build social cohesion, build points of understanding. That was why I set it up. We did a lot of work around education, as I said, around bringing people together, taking people to conflict resolution centers, looking at our historical connecting points, looking at religious connecting points, but also looking at the risks and threat to both communities and how they could work together. I have to tell you that the period before 2010 was a much easier period to do this kind of work. I have to be honest and say that before 2010, this work was easier to do. I found out after 2010, particularly in correlation with the rise of social media, this work has become much, much harder to do. And there is much more polarization that is taking place around all communities, but also around Muslim Jewish dialogue work. Look, I'm not going to kid myself or play up to this kind of kumbaya attitude because it's just ridiculous. There are some who give the impression that all is well, all is not well between Muslim and Jewish communities. Those people who sing and harp the fact that all is well are in a very, very tiny minority. The reality is the majority, particularly within Muslim communities, have never really had the chance to engage with Jews. They've never had the chance to fully kind of befriend, engage, understand, connect with. And and so there are those who talk about, well, things are really good for both communities in the UK either have a vested interest in spreading that kind of language or are not realistic about the risks that are faced. And there are risks. And so so I just wanted to say that after 2010, the work has become more difficult. Now, I'm going on to the issue of the work on Tel Mama and the work around anti-Muslim hate monitoring. I'm not interested in using the word Islamophobia. And again, a lot of co-religionists have attacked me simply because I don't want to use the term Islamophobia. Well, the hell with them is my answer. Uh, I will use whatever term I find appropriate. Anti-Muslim hate is the term I use because people can question religion. People can question Islam all they want. They're not affecting me. They can question Judaism, Christianity all they want. That is free speech. That is the chance for us to be to have the opportunity to dissent against religion as a primary fundamental principle in Western democracy. So in anti-Muslim hatred work, the work I did was to set up the project because if, if you are attacked, whether because you are Jewish or Muslim, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. That's, there's no discussion around this. Because of your identity and who you are, if you are attacked, if you are harassed, if you are threatened, if you are maligned, if your synagogue is attacked, if your mosque is attacked, it's unacceptable. There is a line. There is a clear line in our society. And so my work was about setting up a monitoring process, which I set up with government, and I set up at a national level. Now, it has gone on to do great things. I left that project in 2016 because I was there to build it and build the infrastructure, which I did. So I spent four and a half, five years in that project. It's run by other people. It's still running and it's seen over, it's supported 20,000 members of the British Muslim community since 2012. 
Now, Islamist groups can carp on and on about all they want to do in society, at least if they can give me some indicator of a project that has helped 20,000 people to explain and have anti-Muslim hate accounted for and support given to them to overcome these issues, then, you know, I'll take my hat off. But I can tell you now, um, a lot of these Islamist groups do nothing. So when you have Muslims like me who are proud of multiple parts of their background and their heritage, we don't, we're not here to sing about religion. We're here to ensure that the protection of individuals is there and inherent in society. What I'm trying to add is that, you know, those are the kind of individuals that get on with the work. Right? We get on with the work and we we deliver for the members of the public. We don't harp on about our religion is under attack. You know, the West is bad, which is the Islamist narrative. You know, Jews are behind everything in society. Just look at some of these toxic narratives. And those are the ones that I've challenged most of my life. And I find them repulsive. I continue to find them repulsive and I'll continue to challenge them because not only do they toxify society, but also for the individual saying them. They dumb down that individual. That person never grows in their intellectual capacity. They're just dumbed down into that way of thinking. Sorry, it's a long-winded way to answer your question, but I apologize. <laughs> no, it's it's fascinating. And I think your point, you know, about tangibly supporting, well, founding, supporting, participating in a program which has tangibly helped 20,000 Muslims, it's an extraordinary achievement. And while others talk, you know, I mean, that is that is a really, a really proud legacy and and one that I hope will continue to to bear fruit in, in British society. It's it's a really fantastic achievement. And it's interesting listening to you speak of the narratives, you know, the, the sort of conspiracy theories about Jews and the role of Jews in society. And they're not new. You're absolutely correct. They are, you know, they're sort of rehashed on a, on a fairly cyclical basis. What's interesting is that they're not unique either to Islamism. They are very connected to the far left and the far right. And these are, you know, these are themes that have come up again and again in the conversations I've been having as part of this podcast series. One question I would ask you arising from that is, in your experience working with the Muslim community in the UK, you know, are there sort of, are there trigger points or are there particular reasons or vulnerabilities as to why some of those narratives that are propagated by Islamist extremists, usually, why they resonate or can sort of have an impact on Muslims throughout the UK? That's a great, that is a fabulous question, by the way, you asked. And it's also a complex question. So I think there are a number of factors why it resonates. Um, one of the factors is by the time in the mid 80s that Islamist circles had organized, and they organized quickly because they're good organizers, right? Let's just cut to the chase. People like this who have an ideology, it doesn't matter what your ideology is, if you really believe in it, you're a good, they get organized and they got organized by the mid 80s. By the mid-80s, there was a real vacuum in, in leadership within British Muslim communities. There was a vacuum. First of all, there's a vacuum in leadership. And these Islamist circles filled that vacuum. They filled it quickly, okay? And so there was no counterweight to their narrative. The counterweight to their narrative didn't exist. And with their leaflets and their continuous activity and standing at street corners and standing outside mosques, they circulated mass propaganda. Now, it was difficult in those days. You didn't have the internet, but their hands were pretty good. And they got out thousands of these damn leaflets into society, into communities. And they also started talking at street corners. So they were very focused. One, there was a lack of leadership within British Muslim communities at that time. So there was a void. That lack of leadership continued for a long period of time. I would argue it still continued. Second, and this is painful, but it has to be said, that many within Muslim communities don't even understand elements of Islam. And so if you tell them something and you say, well, actually, that imam said it, 
and that Im other imams said it, it gets kind of accepted into the system that it must be religious. It must be part of Islamic tradition. So there is a vacuum in knowledge around Islam and its history and its nuances like any faith tradition and that there is a significant vacuum within British Muslims communities. There is a significant vacuum. And don't forget that, you know, I think coming up to between 30 to 40, maybe even 50% now of most of the British Muslim communities under the age of 25, a very young community. So we've got, we've got a young community, a community that doesn't fully understand Islamic tradition, history and heritage. And I'm not blaming them for that. I'm not blaming them at all. It's just that the leadership, you know, that a lot of the imams haven't made uh, Islam a very pleasurable experience for learning in mosques. Let's just be honest about it. You know, it's a bit like any migrant community. It's about tradition. It's about structure. And it's not very appealing to a young person to go in there and be told what religion is about rather than being inspired by tradition or inspired by, by discussion. So a lot of Muslims just detach from the mosque structure. And so there's a vacuum in learning. So if they hear something like that, imam said or that, they just go, oh, maybe it's Islamic. And there's an assumed sense that it's brought into the religion. The third thing, and this goes back to the lack of leadership. We saw this with Islamic State. You know, when you have a group that uses under the banner of Islam, that uses a religion, it is swallowed up by some to fill up that sense of lack of leadership, but also lack of identity. This is important. Many any migrant community that comes to any country in a, a, within 100 years is still grappling with identity. Within 200 years, there are still issues around identity, but far less. Within the first 100 years, any community that moves, like Jewish communities, are grappling with issues of identity. Who am I? Is there a place in this society? Have I a role in this society? Will this society accept me? And British Muslim communities have been here since, in majority, the 1960s. We're now 60 years they are still in that window where grappling with identity, who am I, where am I, will this place accept me? And sadly, also, we have had, I have to be honest, newspaper stories in this country, a history and a tradition, previously not so much now, thank God, but previously, you look at some of the headline articles from 1985, 86, 87, that period of time to 2020, and some of the articles gave the impression that Muslims were second-class citizens in this country. Right, that they were unwanted, that they were jihadists, secret jihadists, they were burden on society. A lot of these headlines gave that impression also to Muslims that actually they weren't fully welcome in this society. So when you have that component and you have a perception that people, young people and people are trying to work their way through society, am I accepted? Am I Muslim? Am I British? Can I bring both together? If I reject one part, will other people accept me? They're going through all of this meld of issues that are taking place. And so what IAS did is it gave them a sense, it gave a very tiny segment of the British Muslim community, a perspective of what Islamic identity was, which they absorbed. It was a twisted, misguided perception of identity. But you see, there was a vacuum. It just stuck. It went straight into that channel of the vacuum and it stuck for some. So identity, dislocation, working out place and space, lack of leadership within British Muslim circles, a lack of knowledge about Islamic history, heritage, tradition, and nuances are indicative points of why we are where we are and why Islamist groups and the narratives of anti-Semitism have snuck in and come into play. Now, there's a fourth component here, which is a difficult component, but it has to be said because, you know, we have to talk about 
the bones that are buried between our communities, which have to be talked about if we are to make headway in a positive way. And, you know, the other element is within, and I think Islam has done this really well, they, go, they hark back to, to old battles within Islam and old conflicts within Islam where there were conflicts where some members of the Jewish community in Arabia at that time um, sided with Muslims, some fought against Muslims and lost and died and were killed. And we have that history. You can't get away from that history. And so what Islamists have done is also to say, in a way, you know, we need to hark back to the tradition of war. We need to hark back to the tradition of attacking, or not attacking, but going after Jewish communities because they need to know their place and space. These kind of narratives are then brought into the current context. So they go back historically, and then they link it to the current view of what's happening in Israel and Palestine. And with young people who are socially active and want social justice, all good things, by the way, when they are looking for social justice issues, for example, about Israel and Palestine, and if they are inclined to be with the Palestinian cause, they will swallow up some of these narratives that come out because they believe that the Islamist side are they won't know that the Islamist side, some of them, but they believe that some of that narrative about standing up for Palestine is what they also are about. So there is an ignorance within small sections of, well, within sections of Muslim communities about what are Islamist groups and manipulators and their desire for social justice for Palestine, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Wood from the trees. Yes. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the best explanations I've heard. And in a way, it can be it can be reflected in the many discussions that we've had around recruitment to radical Islamist groups, jihadist groups, radicalization, and even recruitment to foreign foreign terrorist fighters. So it's really relevant. And I think that the kind of the four elements that you've summarized there are extremely well articulated. The identity question, I think, is a really big one. And uh, I think you've you've set it out really clearly. Maybe just jumping back to a point you made a few minutes ago, which I thought was very interesting, which is the question of 2010 and why things have changed a bit since then, or you've noticed a change. And I mean, maybe it's all down to social media. I'm not sure. I think there was a change of government in the UK around that time as well. I don't know if that's a factor that maybe you're too polite to point to. I'm not sure. But I'd be interested to explore that a little bit more, just why you think that sort of was an inflection point and and how things have changed or why it's become more difficult to have these discussions and to build these bridges since that time. Yeah, great question. Some some things to think about. Yeah, I definitely social media created and gave opportunities for people whose voices were we don't mind dissenting, but whose voices were toxic. That's totally different, right? It gave that opportunity. And social media was so open to that platform that people could manipulate it and they were manipulating it through multiple accounts and abuse online. So we a whole pan of worms opened up in 2010. And the impact of that could be seen. We I think we all recognize the impact of social media, but that that point, 2010, for me, doing the project, I could see a change in the willingness for British Muslims and British Jews to connect was much greater. And those that say, oh, it's happening now, I mean, they'll give you selective pictures. You look at the room, there's 20 people in there, the same old people, usually 20 people, 10 people here. These are minuscule numbers compared to the 3 million Muslims and 350, 400,000 Jewish communities. So you're looking at 4 million people and at most we can pull in 30 people in a room. Something is going wrong. As a question we've got to ask and be honest about it, right? You know, it might help people for their honours with government to say, oh, look, I'm a great interfaith activist for bringing 30 people in a room, but let's just cut the BS. It's not working, right? 
the other factor which was interesting is, yes, there was a governmental change. And in the process of a governmental change, there was a small but also a significant impact. Now, I have to be, I'm going to be quite frank, from the 90, late 90s to the 2008, 2010 period of Labour being in government, Islamists had a very good access to Labour government ministers. They were included in policy discussions. They were fated in government policy discussions and brought into ministerial departments to give advice to civil servants. Because the Labour Party didn't quite see Islamism and couldn't view it and couldn't see it and distinguish it. But partly also, they didn't want to go down the line of dealing with, quote, the Islamist issue, because frankly, would it lose them votes? So there was a political component, but also there was a desire that, you know, we don't need to look at this issue, even though... 7-7 had happened. It was a difficult discussion for Labour to talk about Islamism, so they took a blanket approach to extremism. Okay? That was the problem. The problem is, and not to quote cheese off some sections of, of British Muslim communities, we are going to take extremism as a wide indicative umbrella problem because the rest of this is very difficult. And actually, maybe some of this community are more inclined to us. Right? Now, here comes 2010. And here's a problem. So, so that was the problem under the Labour administration. Now we have a problem with the Conservative administration. Nobody wants to talk about it. today. People are saying the Conservative administration is very good on understanding Islamism. Yes, uh, I commend them for moving in that direction. But they have been pretty goddamn slow, like snails, getting to this position and still are snail-like in many things, like supporting activists who challenge Islamists. I mean, you to get government support, you might as well forget it. You're on your own. Just watch your back is where we're still at. But but what happened in 2010 was, uh, is for two years, as the government was working out its strategy of what to do with extremism, there was a vacuum of discussion and there was also a vacuum of public statements and a vacuum of leadership around the extremism agenda. That went on for a further two, three years, between 2010 to 2014. I remember this. That coalition government absolutely did and said as little as possible on extremism, and that created a vacuum. Now, when you have the social media bulge and build-up and development between 2010 to a lack of anything around Islamist extremism or extremism between 10, 2010 and 15, that vacuum was a breeding pot, an absolute breeding pot for all kinds of weird and wacky ideas around anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim hatred, anti-LGBT hate to come out. It was a cesspit that was created in 2010 to 15. And there are the roots of what we're all still dealing with. And I have to say Musk's movements to take Twitter backwards, and that's the way I'll describe it, are now creating another set of problems. But imagine then in 2010 when we had Facebook and it was growing and we had a burgeoning, then we had Twitter was, was there. We had one after another kicked off and that window was completely unfettered. And I remember the poisonous anti-Muslim hate and the poison of anti-Semitism just coming out constantly from accounts. And and, I, and the number of, sort of reports that Talmama did around anti-Muslim hate accounts and the number of reports that the CSD did that that were virtually never even responded to. So we were spending a lot of time going through the complaint process, but it was a sham with those social medias. It was a sham. Nobody did a damn thing. It was just to say, here's an email address if you have a complaint or press this and send the complaint in. But it was just to mollify the public. It was just to pacify politicians. There was nothing being done on complaints. Yeah. 
that's obviously going to contribute to the sort of the the environment for the, this type of extremism and hateful narratives. Maybe looking at some of the solutions and maybe, you know, focusing a little bit now on what can work, what does work. And, you know, I think your experience obviously spans really two decades specifically working on the issue of anti-Semitism within Muslim communities. Are there specific initiatives that have worked? I mean, obviously, education plays a really important role in all of this, building understanding, awareness, knowledge. Are there specific projects that you can point to that you say, yes, that really, really did have an impact or really, you know, maybe they're ongoing and could have an impact? Anything that you, you sort of have identified? as being positive? You know, I, I think the ones... I, so I'll start off by saying, if I can segmentalise it and start off by saying that the projects that have involved women-to-women connection has really been quite positive. Mm. Uh, there is a clearly a gender component to this. So women-to-women interaction between Muslim women and Jewish women actually has had more sticky opportunities, sticky opportunities for them to connect over time. So first thing to say. The second thing to say is looking at things like Srebrenica and, and the Holocaust... Whilst the time goes on, they become more and more difficult to make applicable to generations going forward, even though that is still being done very well by the Holocaust Memorial Trust and other organizations on the Muslim side. Uh, and I commend them. I take my hat off to them. The fact is, it is the it is the elements of looking at these two and other points around the history of what has happened to both communities, which does still provide a traction to draw in young Muslims and Jews. Now, so historical relevant points, sadly, around very brutal events, still activates people to want to get engaged, to come together. So there's an activation factor to it. I guess what I'm saying is we need to look at how that messaging continues on, but not about constantly saying we are victims. That's important. I need to underscore that. We're not victims in Europe. We shouldn't regard ourselves as victims. Okay, we have we still have the opportunity to make change in many ways and we continue to have an opportunity to make change. So we're not victims. I think it's about, though, activating those individuals by saying to them that by joint working, by coming together, we can actually overcome some of the potential challenges ahead. So those kind of projects are really important. And they do have attraction because they activate. So whether it's using examples like Srebrenica or Holocaust, they do activate people. Second thing. Third thing. What I also found useful was to get projects that experientially put people in a scenario have a huge impact. So we can put on a talk. We can put on a lecture. They'll have an impact. But it's unless you experientially put somebody in a scenario, like taking them to Auschwitz or Srebrenica, that makes a significant distinctive difference going forward. So projects that experientially put somebody in a situation. So say, say for example, if there's a project where somebody has been, an Islamist has been anti-Semitic and you expose them to somebody who suffered anti-Semitism, that would have an experiential impact, which would be quite significant. And those kind of projects can create real quick and lasting change. Yeah. So those kind of three pointers are my experiences and examples, experiential historical things that activate, that really grab people into the stomach, but activate them about coming together between both communities to look at potential risk to our communities as continues on. And I guess the first and foremost thing is looking at also how you can bring about the mobilization of women to further engage between Muslim and Jewish communities, because that is, there are many more opportunities. I don't know whether it's because of women, women's communicative styles, I don't know, but the sense of connection is quite easier, much more easier, and they're willing to turn out and the connectivity is much better. The stickiness of their connectivity is much better. Does that make sense? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence that within communities, you know, women have disproportionate influence, particularly when it comes to, you know, young sons. And sometimes they are disproportionately the target of some of these narratives. So it, it seems like a, a pretty smart approach. The experiential aspect is one that I think modern technology can certainly be leveraged to really accelerate and to bring these experiences to a wider audience. So CEP has worked with Nobody's Listening to bring an artificial intelligence experience of the Yazidi genocide to young people in the UK and elsewhere. And it it has been hugely effective. So I suppose they're the sort of things I was going to ask you, you know, the role of government in all of this. And maybe it is not so much to run programs themselves, but rather to partner with communities, with NGOs and organizations that have the capacity to deliver these types of programs at a local level. Yeah, I think in the UK, there is very little capacity to run these at local levels because the government pretty much is kind of financially is in a very tough place. But also, I don't think there is much stomach right now for them backing this kind of work. I don't know what the particular reason is, but I don't think there's any stomach. I think they're using legislation as a much more blunter tool to challenge things like anti-Semitism, which has its place. But, you know, there's only so much you could do with legislation, right? There's only so much you can do with these kind of blanket government-led instructions. So I think all I'm saying is mm. I think government are not the complete, are not the, are not the solution even at this moment in time, right? I think government can only go so far in terms of the legislative processes. I do think we need philanthropy from both communities, from Muslims and Jewish communities to come together and to start supporting this work. And it's not happening, and it's not happened for the last 20 years in a structured way. And so my call, if there's anyone who watches this who's interested in philanthropy, is to get together with members of Muslim communities who also maybe business people they know, or people they know through their networks, who can set aside a fund and develop more of those funds to, to try to support this work, because that has been the glaringly obvious whole in all of this process. You know, and each community's funding its own silo, like uh, you'll have a Muslim philanthropist, predominantly, most of them will say, I'll give to the mosque, I'll give to a Muslim, I'll give to a Muslim center. Um, You'll have those predominantly within Jewish communities who are giving to issues around Jewish causes. Yeah, fine, great. Carry on doing that. Important you all do that. Important you support your communities, but also support what's happening around lower levels in your communities. But actually coming together is going to have a much wider impact. And if there are those individuals who are interested, who are philanthropists, we'll put together a structure because the impact you can make going forward is not only on tackling hatred and intolerance and anti-Muslim hate and anti-Semitism, but you can actually tackle our security issues, but you can also tackle extremism. You've got multiple impacts and threads of positive impacts from such kind of supportive philanthropistic philanthropistic is there such a word philanthropistic word i'll use that word anyway philanthropic <laughs> philanthropic <laughs> philanthropic <laughs> no it's a really good point it's a really good point i suppose if people are thinking about you know maximizing the bang for their book then you know it really is quite logical to try to make it go further out not just 
within the community, but in building those relationships and bridges to, to other communities. It makes an awful lot of sense. Um, Fias, I think we have probably run over time, but I think it's been it's been so interesting and you're clearly so passionate about the work that you do and you have gained so much experience over the past number of decades in doing it. So I really want to thank you for sharing your insights and your time with us today. And uh, I hope we'll have an opportunity to discuss these and more issues uh, again in the future. So thank you very, very much for, for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.